society. Nevertheless, I question this reading of the Bible. Certainly, abusing, certainly the narratives of Israel's history reveal numerous examples of men abusing their responsibility and twisting their authority into abuse and tyranny. But I do not see that reflected in the ideals of creation, the Mosaic Law, or even or the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. One of my professors at Wheaton, Dan Block, has repeatedly argued for a different word to characterize the Old Testament's normative teaching about the structure of family and society. It has appealed to me ever since he passionately, passionately talked about it in class over a decade ago. The word is patricentric. You can see the similarity between patricentric and patriarchal. The more familiar patriarchal refers to father rule or the rule of the father. Patrocentric suggests a picture of family and society where the father is at the center. Dr. Block illustrates the idea with a picture of a wheel with spokes. The father or head of household is positioned at the center with arrows radiating outward indicating his position as serving those outside of himself, which would include the members of his household and beyond. Thus, the father is depicted as one who takes responsibility for providing for, protecting, and serving his household, equipping them to go out and serve their neighbors. That is a better reflection, I believe, of what the Bible portrays, and it fits better also with a complementarian understanding of the relationship between men and women, husbands and wives, than either the ideas of patriarchalism or egalitarianism. Egalitarianism suggests that men and women should be viewed as equal in every way and in every context, so that there is no additional burden of responsibility or measure of authority delegated to the husband with respect to the wife, and there is no additional burden of responsibility or measure of authority delegated to qualified Christian men in the church. Husband and wife scholars Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger, in their book God's Design for Men and Women, summarize the difference between a patriarchal perspective and a patrocentric perspective. They write... While the father was indisputably in charge of those under his care, the Old Testament rarely focuses on his power. Rather than functioning as a despot or a dictator, the head of household usually commanded the trust and provided for the security of its members. For this reason, it was not primarily the father's authority that was emphasized, but rather his responsibility for the welfare of the members of household. It is primarily a difference in emphasis, but an important difference nonetheless. Two weeks ago, we looked at Paul's instructions to Timothy for the church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, Paul provided some specific instruction for how Christian men and Christian women must conduct themselves when they gather together as a church. With this, Paul specified a limitation for Christian women. Christian women must not aspire to the office of overseer. That is to say, Christian women must not seek to teach or exercise authority over men in church. There are appropriate contexts in which Christian women may teach men, scripture, and theology, but the responsibility for ongoing authoritative instruction of the church body as a whole is granted to Christian men qualified to serve as elders. While many students of scripture have struggled 
with this limitation and have used the label patriarchal to seek to dismiss the teaching of the passage, if the biblical teaching is more of an authority structure that is patrocentric for both the home and the church, the emphasis changes and the ideal arguably presents fewer problems. We noted how Paul argues specifically for this limitation for Christian women primarily on the basis of the sequence of creation. Adam was created first and then Eve. Paul draws on the creation narrative in one other passage where he provides specific instruction for the behavior of Christian men and Christian women in local church gatherings. In 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, Paul famously or infamously, depending on who you ask, addresses the topic of wearing head coverings in church. This is one of the rare passages in the New Testament where understanding the historical and cultural background is absolutely essential to properly understand the passage. We must consider what covering one's head communicated to the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day. Unfortunately, this background is difficult to pin down. Thus, students of Scripture come to very different conclusions about the meaning and application of this passage. Does that mean we should ignore the text? Gloss over it? We're preaching through Genesis right now. After all, we don't have to go here. In spite of the controversy, in spite of the confusion that surrounds this passage, I think it will be good for us to attempt to understand this passage. Our main goal will be to understand how and why Paul appeals to the creation account of Genesis. But at the same time, we can responsibly seek to understand Paul's teaching here, even if we must admit to some uncertainty at certain points. This particular passage presents a difficult barrier to understanding. The historical background is unclear. This, the Corinthians wouldn't have needed to have the significance of these things explained to them. Nevertheless, just because it's hard doesn't mean we should or can shy away from seeking to understand what we've been given. Paul wrote this letter during his long stay in Ephesus. He had received a report from Chloe's people regarding terrible divisions in the church of Corinth, which he addresses in chapters 1 to 6. Also, he had received a letter from the church itself, highlighting some specific questions, which he begins dealing with in chapter 7. Thus, it's possible that in the course of their letter to Paul, they mentioned how men and women were utilizing head coverings in corporate worship, and Paul chooses to respond with some authoritative, corrective teaching. Afterward, he addresses several other problems in the way they were behaving when they gathered together for worship. We can trace Paul's argument in this passage pretty clearly. Verses 4 and 5 contain the main point of his instruction, where he lays out the fundamentals of head coverings for Christian men and Christian women. Everything else in the passage pretty much is supporting this. Thus, verses 2 and 3 provide the setup for the instruction, the proper biblical and theological context for the practice he's regulating. Then verses 5 to 16 provide several lines of reasoning to support Paul's instruction with an important qualification in verses 11 and 12 where Paul heads off a potential misunderstanding. The logic of the passage is quite straightforward. It's the details of the practice that remain cloudy. Well, let's see what we can make of it. We begin in verse 2 with the gospel setup. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 
Paul praises the Corinthians before he corrects them. I assume he's responding to something they expressed in their letter, where they acknowledge their respect for Paul and their desire to submit to whatever he has to say. However, there's more here. Reference to the traditions might lead us on a first reading to think he's merely speaking of various Christian practices unique to the church. However, he repeats this verbiage very specifically in chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul goes on to mention how the risen Jesus appeared to lots of eyewitnesses. The tight connection between chapter 11 and chapter 15 is not made clear in our English Bibles. Paul uses the same word in chapter 15, verse 2, here translated hold fast to, as in chapter 11, verse 2, where it's translated maintain. Thus, in 11.2, Paul commends them for holding fast to the traditions he delivered to them. And in 15.2, he reminds them that they must continue to hold fast to the word, the gospel he preached to them. When we hold these two passages together, we can see that Paul is setting up his instruction on head coverings with the gospel. What he delivered to them previously was the gospel with its entailments, its various applications to the life of believers. This is clear in chapter 15, where what he delivered to them is the historical facts that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, Paul delivered the gospel to them. Ultimately, Paul begins and wraps up his main teaching of this letter to the Corinthian church with reference to the gospel. This is to help us see that Paul sees the gospel as the solution to every problem they're experiencing in their church. And the same is true today. The church needs to hear the gospel. Yes, it's the old, old story, and we need to be reminded of it every week, if not more frequently. Also, we need to see how the gospel is supposed to shape our Christian lives, both corporately when we gather together and also privately. The gospel is to shape our thinking, our feeling, our reacting, our choosing, our living in this world. Thus, in this passage, Paul is seeking to bring the gospel to bear on how Christian men and Christian women should handle head coverings in corporate worship. In verse 3, then, Paul draws out a theological principle from the gospel itself. In doing so, he adds a theological setup to his instruction regarding head coverings. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Two major issues face us here. What does Paul mean by head? And are we talking about husbands and wives or men and women, more generally. Regarding the second question, I'd like to follow the NASB and several other versions which have a reference to man and woman. So the New American Standard Bible reads, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, I don't think Paul means every man is the head of every woman. 
This will become clearer in a minute. Part of my reasoning for this goes back to the idea that biblical family structure is patricentric. Thus, in their world especially, but it's still true today, every woman was and is in some way connected with a particular man, whether that be her father, her brothers, or her husband. Now, we can think of exceptions to this, a single daughter who is an only child and whose father and grandfather have died, but Paul is expressing the general principle and is not helping us think through the various exceptions. Thus, male headship is not just about marriage. And we're already steering our way toward the meaning of the word head when we think here of the head of the household. Reflecting Genesis 2.24, when a man leaves his father and mother in order to marry a woman, he becomes the head of a new household as husband. So what does Paul mean by head? We must be very careful here. The idea of marriage kind of creeps in right here at this point partially because of what Paul says elsewhere. In Ephesians 5, famously, Paul develops the metaphor of a husband being head of his wife and his wife being, therefore, his body. Thus, in Ephesians 5, Paul is using an anatomical metaphor. Husband as head, wife as body. I do not believe that is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 11. There is no mention of a body in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, interestingly, in the very next chapter, Paul will develop an anatomical metaphor as he speaks of the church as Christ's body. But in that chapter, he doesn't specify Christ as head of the church. Instead, he makes passing reference to a head as simply one of the parts of the body. Thus, I don't believe in 1 Corinthians at all, Paul is working with the anatomical metaphor the way he later develops it in Ephesians. Since there is no mention of a body here, we need not think in terms of husband and wife or Christ and the church. So what does head mean then? Well, it's a simple metaphor, parallel to how we speak of the head of a company, the head of state, or the head of a department. It is a way of expressing authority. That will become explicit in verse 10, when he refers to authority on a woman's head, What is over her head, what is covering her head, represents authority. Paul cleverly utilizes the idea of head as authority to address the issue of how Christian men and Christian women were to deal with the issue of literal, physical head coverings in the church. Paul introduces this imagery in verse 3. Christ is the head of every man. Now, I do believe this should be restricted to every man in the church, every Christian man. Sure, in a sense, Christ is the head over every man on the planet, just as much as he is the head of every created thing in the universe. But Paul's argument is more focused. He is saying that Jesus, the Messiah, exercises authority over every Christian man, every man in the church. Then he adds, the man is the head of a woman. Thus, serving as father, husband, or brother... Christian men carry a certain measure of authority over a particular Christian woman who might be that Christian man's daughter, wife, or sister. Then climactically, Paul adds that God is the head of Christ. Visualize this with me. The Messiah, you see it up on the screen, the Messiah is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. God is the head of the Messiah. Now, if headship has to do with exercising authority, then we can re-visualize this like so on the next slide. 
The Messiah exercises authority over every man. The man exercises authority over a woman. God exercises authority over the Messiah. This climactic third pairing, God exercising authority over the Messiah, is where we see the gospel yet again. Thus, this theological setup is really Paul specifying what aspect of the gospel tradition he wants to apply to the Corinthian church's situation. Jesus' submission to his Father's authority is a major theme in the Scriptures, particularly shows up in the Gospel of John. But Paul speaks of this theme regularly. As Paul refers to Christ, the Messiah, he points to the Incarnation, the Son of God becoming man who lived, died, and rose from the dead to accomplish the salvation of sinners. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, completely equal with God the Father, yet the Father sent him into this world on a mission, and the Son submitted to his Father's sending and obeyed him in every way. As Paul says in another place, the son didn't count his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Perhaps here, Paul is hinting toward the same thing for Christian women who are equal with Christian men. The other important thing to notice in this arrangement is that the Messiah is mentioned twice, and he's identified as both on top and on bottom. In other words, Christ both has a head and is a head. He is in authority, and he is under authority. He is a head in relationship to every Christian man, and he has a head who is God the Father. Thus, Christ sets the pattern of both headship and submission. He stands in the place of men and women who sit in the middle of this arrangement in this verse. Yes, Christian men will continue to serve as heads of households, exercising a measure of authority over the Christian women in their families. But this is an authority of service, an authority of love, like God's authority over Christ, and like Christ's authority over every man. And Christian women will appropriately acknowledge and respond to the male authorities God has placed in their lives, especially in the local church. It's from this gospel and theological foundation that Paul begins to address the problem in the Corinthian church. In verses 4 and 5, Paul essentially commands both Christian men and Christian women, don't dishonor your head. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now we'll stop there in the middle of verse 5. Now, again, I'm following other versions, including the ESV footnote, which acknowledges that wife could be a reference to a woman. The concern has to do with the practice of public praying or public prophesying. Now, I'm going to limit our focus to public praying for simplicity's sake this morning. There's lots of debate about the nature of the prophesying mentioned here, and I don't want to get lost in that. One comment will suffice. Whatever prophesying was... It was not the same thing as the teaching or exercising authority we saw Paul prohibiting in Ephesus two weeks ago in 1 Timothy 2.12. Prophesying is something different, and Christian women could do this in local church gatherings. It is a form of public speaking in church gatherings that Christian women were encouraged to do. 
Likewise, the reference to praying here is not to praying privately or silently. It is to leading others in praying, praying publicly, to which the rest of the church body can say amen. Paul first addresses the men. For Christian men, praying publicly in church while wearing a head covering is not appropriate. Paul says that for Christian men to do so dishonors their head. Since verse 3 said that Christ is the head of every man, then Paul means that this act dishonors Christ. That seems kind of serious. Now, I don't think this is necessarily talking about how a man needs to remove his baseball cap when he prays, though that is a respectful thing to do in our culture. For Christian women, the problem is different. A Christian woman who prays publicly while not wearing a head covering dishonors her head, which, according to verse 3, was the man, which I take to be the Christian man who has authority over that woman, her father, husband, or brother. In the church community, it could also extend to elders who have a proper authority over the entire congregation. So the message to both Christian men and Christian women is the same. Don't dishonor your metaphorical head. This is where understanding the background might bring some clarity. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Mike Winger's YouTube video on 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, which exhaustively covers all the issues surrounding that passage, clocking in at 11 and a half hours. If you want to dig in further on this passage and the head coverings issue, Winger has another excellent and thorough video in that series. Good news, it's not nearly as long. It's only almost seven hours long. Now, Winger admits that pinning down the cultural practices Paul has in view is the most difficult challenge. Paul seems to be addressing a situation where there is a small group of men in the church who were wearing a head covering while publicly praying in church gatherings. And there is a small group of women who were refusing to wear a head covering while publicly praying in church. It's possible that the reason men were doing this differs entirely from the reason women were doing this. Both Roman men and women were known to wear head coverings when they performed religious rituals in worship of the Roman gods. But Roman women generally wore head coverings anytime they went out in public also. So what we need to see from this dual background is that head coverings communicated two different symbolic messages in the Roman world of the first century. In the religious realm, wearing head coverings for both men and women communicated humility and submission before the God they were worshiping. But head coverings for women also communicated humility and submission toward fathers and husbands. However, there is evidence that in the first century around Corinth, wealthy High society women had begun the practice of going out in public without head coverings, which made a particular statement. Particularly, these women were basically advertising their independence from men. Even if their wealth and status was created by their husbands or their fathers, there does seem to be a developing practice at the time of high society women no longer wearing head coverings out in public. And this was probably encouraged by their husbands because it would reflect their high status as well. 
So a Roman woman out in public without a head covering might communicate to onlookers that she and her family had risen above the normal rules of society. So it's possible that Paul says that Christian men who publicly pray or prophesy in church while wearing a head covering dishonor Christ because they're attempting to worship Jesus in a pagan way. At the same time, Christian women who publicly pray or prophesy in church while not wearing a head covering dishonor the man under whose authority they live. Paul is primarily concerned with the message these practices communicate about gender. And what will become clearer later in the passage is that the problem Paul highlights with men wearing head coverings while praying publicly in church is that they're presenting themselves as dressed like women. Thus, to oversimplify the issue, but I think to genuinely summarize the gist, Paul doesn't want Christian men to act like women, especially when they lead in prayer or prophesying in church. And Paul doesn't want Christian women to act like men, especially when they lead in prayer or prophesying in church. Reversing gender roles especially in the context of public worship of Jesus, is unacceptable. Author Claire Smith summarizes the point well. When a man covered his head while praying or prophesying, he was, in effect, denying his responsibilities as a man by dressing like a woman. But Paul isn't content to merely assert his authority. He offers five lines of reasoning to support this. Reason number one focuses on shame, which was a huge deal in their culture. Pick up the second half of verse 5 and read on through verse 6. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Again, I don't think this is limited to married women. Paul equates a Christian woman's refusing to wear a head covering when she prays in church with having her head shaven. This is a cultural reference, but I think it's clear what he means. Especially in their culture, only men would shave their heads, and only men would wear their hair especially short. But there were times in their world when women would have their heads shaved, and it was never good. If a woman was caught committing adultery, the offended husband might punish her by shaving her head. Or when one nation invaded another, they might capture the women and shave their heads. Or sometimes female slaves had their heads shaved to display their status as slaves. Thus Paul is pointing to the shame of the situation. Obviously no Christian woman would volunteer for such shame in their culture. So Paul commands each Christian woman to cover her head when she's praying or prophesying in church. Now it's important to not take this command out of context. Paul is not commenting one way or another on whether Christian men should Christian women should wear head coverings out in public or when they come to church just as an attender. Rather, it's only when a Christian woman is going to stand up to lead the congregation in prayer or to deliver a prophecy that Paul insists she must wear a head covering. We might speculate that he would affirm them wearing head coverings more generally out in public since the celebration of her womanhood is And the clear communication of her proper relationship to her husband or father is obviously important to him. But that is not Paul's point here. 
Paul's second reason in verses 7 to 10 points to the created order. This is where he appeals to Genesis to support the practice. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Men ought not to wear head coverings when they're praying or prophesying in church because they are the image and glory of God. I think turning this phrase into verbs will help us. Men image or reflect God, and men glorify God. Now, in saying this of Christian men, I don't think Paul is excluding women at all. He is not saying that women don't reflect God, aren't made in the image of God just as much as the men are. He is also not saying that women don't glorify God. After all, in the paragraph before this chapter began, Paul instructs all Christian men and women together to do everything to the glory of God. But Paul is making a very precise point in this context. For a man to wear a head covering like a woman should while praying in church would not reflect God well because it would be a rejection of how God made the man to uniquely reflect God. In other words, men reflect God as men. There is something about maleness that uniquely reflects God. And Paul forbids obscuring that by wearing something uniquely appropriate for a woman. Paul then indicates that woman is the glory of man. Or, to put it in verbal form, woman glorifies man. Christian women's manner of praying and prophesying in church should bring honor to the man under whose authority she lives. Paul may even be suggesting that one way Christian women glorify God is by appropriately glorifying the man under whose authority they live. Now, it's also true that Christian men should honor women. And Christian husbands are specifically commanded to honor their wives in 1 Peter 3, 7. But again, Paul is making a very specific point here. Paul sees the narrative of Genesis 2 as supporting this. God built the first woman from Adam's side, and he brought her to him as his proper partner. She was made for him, not just in terms of marriage, but in terms of the broader partnership between men and women in ruling and subduing the rest of the world. Now, in the new creation, Christian men and Christian women partner together to make disciples of all nations. But the created authority structure remains. As husband and wife, Adam and Eve were also commissioned to multiply and fill the earth. But as we've seen, their partnership goes beyond procreation. Paul brackets his references to Genesis 2 with an ought for the man and an ought for the woman. The men ought not wear a head covering and the women ought to wear a head covering in church when praying or prophesying publicly in front of the group. Now Paul, now Paul uses the term authority in verse 10 regarding what the woman wears on her head. Most of our English Bibles have the phrase symbol of authority, and those Bibles that use italics to indicate when a word has been supplied by the translators have symbol of in italics. We could translate Paul literally as saying here, that is why a woman ought to have authority on her head. But the words symbol of are exactly correct, certainly reflecting what Paul means. 
He's referring to the cloth head covering, recognized in their culture as a symbol that communicates a message. Author Claire Smith makes an interesting observation in her excellent book, God's Good Design. She writes, Friends familiar with Muslim culture, which is primarily where veils are worn these days, tell me their head coverings are a sign of subservience and inequality rather than a visual reminder of authority that occurs within a relationship of equal worth and dignity. She's suggesting that Paul's understanding of Christian women wearing head coverings in church when praying or prophesying is that it reflects authority in the context of equal worth and dignity, because that is the biblical framework for the relationship between men and women. This observation foreshadows our conclusion. When we think of applying this passage, we've got to recognize the different messages communicated by head coverings, and it will be crucial to ensure that we're communicating the message Paul wants us to communicate, even if the particular symbol takes a different shape. At the end of verse 10, Paul tacks on a third reason. He says simply, because of the angels. Speculation abounds. Here's one. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul indicates that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. So maybe in, here in 1 Corinthians 11.10, Paul is hinting at how the angels observe Christians worshiping together. And if they are to get a picture of the manifold wisdom of God then Christian men and Christian women need to be worshiping together in a way that maintains the created order. Paul then thinks of a possible misunderstanding he wants to head off at this point. So he adds a qualification clarifying the interdependence of men and women in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Even though God has designed a certain authority structure where men are given a certain measure of authority in the family, that doesn't make women inferior to men. Now, it's interesting that he begins this statement with the phrase, in the Lord, because what he says applies to everyone on the planet. But I think this phrase is important. Christians in Corinth might conclude, and maybe Christians today, might conclude that becoming a Christian overturns normal human society. As Paul's words in Galatians 3.28, there is no male and female, have been distorted and confused. So also, by him zooming in on a different practice required for women, people could misinterpret him. He gives a prominent example of how men remain dependent on women. Every man on the planet will continue to have his origin in his mother's womb. This is one of those obvious statements in Scripture. But don't miss Paul's point. The reason he brings up the obvious fact that every man who started life as a baby boy in the womb of a woman is to point to other ways that Christian men continue to be dependent on Christian women in the church. We need each other. We can't separate off entirely into men's ministries and women's ministries. In fact, one of the goals of men's ministry should be to help men relate to women more faithfully. And one of the goals of women's ministry should be to help women relate more faithfully to men. 
as we are to be dependent on each other, we are both and all ultimately dependent on God for everything. This is a fundamental truth of Christianity. God designed human beings to need God and each other. In verses 13 to 15, Paul returns to supporting reasons for the head-covering practices he's been discussing. This time he appeals to nature. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. This argument's a little bit difficult to follow, isn't it? At first, with the rhetorical question, he's suggesting that what he's been telling them should be obvious to them, even without theological and biblical argumentation. And again, don't take verse 13 out of context. Paul surely means to refer to a Christian woman's praying publicly in church. How should the Corinthian Christians know that it isn't proper for a Christian woman to pray to God without wearing a head covering? Paul says that nature teaches the lesson. What Paul means by nature has been debated. Let's look at the lesson first, and then perhaps we can tell what Paul means by nature. He refers specifically to hair length. Now, what's interesting about this is that we have evidence of Greek philosophers discussing what nature teaches about hair length. When Paul says that long hair is a woman's glory, he means that women having long hair is a reason that people should glorify or honor her. Thus, when Paul says that long hair is a disgrace for a man, he means that a man having long hair is a reason that people would dishonor him or shame him. Now, we know that long hair for men is not universally always dishonorable. After all, in the Mosaic Law, there is provision made for men letting their hair grow long for a Nazarite vow. Commentator Andy Nacelli makes an interesting suggestion in thinking through this. After mentioning male characters in the Bible who grew their hair long without apparent condemnation, he writes, It is possible for a man to have long hair in a cultural context where it is not dishonorable. But such long hair must look masculine in that culture. Examples of masculine-looking men with shoulder-length hair include ancient Spartan warriors. The pastor, the Puritan pastor John Bunyan, pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards, and the American football players Troy Polamalu and Clay Matthews, who I think are retired now. I suppose you could look at a photo of me on my wedding day. Shoulder-length hair. I think I looked still like a man during that time, (laughs) that weird time of my life. Um, It was short-lived. But there's more. Paul's use of nature doesn't seem to equate with cultural custom. After all, Paul uses the same word in Romans 1.26 to describe the dishonorable passions of women who exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, it's true that nature is not God. But the way Paul refers to nature in both of these passages, he seems to be further characterizing something God designed as part of the created order, as well as something that people generally recognize as part of basic human design. 
Perhaps it's significant that there is abundant evidence in the Greek philosophical and medical writings of Paul's day that recognized hair length and thickness as a distinguishing marker between the sexes. Paul may be appealing to physiological nature. And perhaps Andy Nacelli again has pointed to the physiological underpinnings of this reality. He observes, the way God created males to have testosterone and females to have estrogen contributes to the fact that for most cultures throughout history, women have had longer hair than men. As a general rule, testosterone in males causes men's hair to be shorter and to thin and fall out much more quickly and frequently than does the hair of women who do not usually go bald. This is a generic argument. It's not applied to every specific individual, but there are tendencies that are recognized, and they were recognized in Paul's world just as much as they're recognized today, even with perhaps more scientific precision in our day. This is in line with all of these discussions in ancient Greek philosophy and medical writings. Paul's not saying something weird here in his context. Everybody would have recognized what he said and said, oh yeah, I get that. Thus, Paul observes that women's tendency to grow longer hair is natural and is a God-designed indicator of the appropriateness of a woman covering her head for certain reasons. In other words, Paul's arguing by analogy here. God created women with the capacity to grow longer hair, which naturally covers their heads. He's suggesting a theological rationale for God's creating women to grow longer hair. Why did God do that? God did it this way For two reasons, at least. So that men would honor women appropriately. It is her glory. And also, he did it so that women would recognize the propriety of covering their heads to signify their submission to certain male authorities in their lives. It is given to them for a covering. Paul's encouraging Christian women to voluntarily publicize their submissiveness, particularly in the context of corporate worship. Christian women may pray and prophesy in church, but they must do so while choosing to acknowledge the men under whose authority they live. The culturally clear way to do that in first century Corinth was to wear a cloth covering on their heads. Paul adds a final reason in verse 16, the universal practice of all the churches. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Apparently, The situation was not a problem in other churches Paul was familiar with. With the background we sketched out earlier, it's not surprising that the city of Corinth might be among the first to have this kind of situation creep into the church. Since Corinth sought to mirror Rome, it makes sense that some of the Roman values, even as they got twisted and distorted, might be more reflected in Corinth than in other places. Nevertheless, Paul can appeal to universal church practice on this topic and thereby encourage the, Christian, the Corinthian church to conform. What does this all have to do with us today? Must Christian women wear a head covering in church when they pray publicly? Well, they can. Many churches continue to encourage women to wear head coverings, both out in public and when they come to church. And many Christian women want to do this as a way of communicating their womanhood and as a way of communicating their submission to their husband. For them, to not wear a head covering would be to sin against their conscience. And for many of them, they would be going against the teaching of their church leadership. Let each Christian read the scriptures responsibly 
and seek to understand these issues alongside other Christians in each local church. I might question whether wearing a head covering today communicates the same ideas it communicated in the first century. Claire Smith writes, The fact is there is no piece of clothing that functions as a cultural equivalent to the first century Greco-Roman head covering. In Western cultures, there is no garment that says, I'm a married woman and I'm happy to be a married woman and to accept the order and responsibility that God's pattern of relationships gives to my husband. That's the message the head covering seems to have communicated in, their, in the early church. Some have suggested women taking their husband's last name or wearing a wedding ring might be the closest parallels. But even those don't necessarily say anything. For example, don't assume that Tamara is not my wife or she doesn't care about submitting in our marriage just because she's not wearing her wedding ring on any given day. There might be any number of reasons it's not on her finger on a, at a particular time. Likewise, Eliana shares my last name. So that's an indicator that she's my daughter. But there are plenty of little girls, and boys for that matter, in our culture today who do not share the last name of either their biological father or their mother's husband. I am a case in point in that regard. So, how then do we live out this passage? How does it apply? The gospel setup and the theological setup from verses 2 and 3 indicate the primary message of the passage. There is a God-designed order for the family and the church. God gives to Christian men the responsibility to provide for and protect their families and their churches. Christian women partner together with Christian men in church without throwing off the God-ordained, God-appointed authority granted to Christian men. Christian women may pray publicly in our church services, even leading Christian men in prayer, but they must do so in ways that don't exclude men, denigrate men, or embarrass men, particularly the men under whose authority they live. So, obeying and applying this passage will have more to do with the way we live our lives, the way we conduct our relationships, and the way we carry ourselves whenever we lead others in public prayer. Perhaps in our culture, there is no symbol of authority that is commonly recognized. Christian men need to act and dress like men. And Christian women need to act and dress like women. Christian men must not abandon their responsibility for those who have been entrusted to them. And Christian women must not seek to throw off the male authorities under whose care the Lord has placed them. God has designed the family and the church to be patricentric. This is because the universe is patricentric. God the Father remains at the center of the universe. History is moving toward this final, His final ultimate centrality and supremacy. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Paul writes, When all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God the Father may be all in all. Likewise, in Philippians 2, 9-11, the ultimate outcome of the eternal Son's humbling Himself in the Incarnation was so that His Father might finally receive all glory. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has illustrated 
the proper manner of male headship in all of its various forms. He demonstrated what headship means in his voluntary self-sacrifice for the sins of the world. So that, as one writer puts it, male headship is self-effacing, not self-promoting. Committed to the welfare of the other, not promoting control, domination, and abuse. Likewise, Jesus has illustrated the proper manner of female submission in all of its various forms. He was determined to honor his father, and he remained committed to submitting his own will to his father's will. He could do this so perfectly because he had full confidence in his father's goodness and love. Unfortunately, no woman can have that same full confidence in the goodness or love of any man. Nevertheless, God's design remains. Christian men will continue to fail to exercise authority in a Christ-honoring way. And Christian women will continue to struggle to respond to that authority in Christ-honoring ways. Fortunately for both Christian men and Christian women, Jesus is the Savior of sinners and failures. And He supplies the Holy Spirit to enable us to change and grow so that we might better look like Jesus. As Christian men and Christian women partner and pray together, the manifold wisdom of God might truly be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. Let's pray together that it would be so here. Father, we glorify you, we honor you, and we thank you. We thank you for the ways that you have designed the world. We don't see that design functioning as it should around us. And we don't always know how to find our own place in that structure, given the rebellion of humanity, given the rebellion of our own selves. And so we ask for your help to work out this dance well, by your grace, relying on your mercy as we step on each other's toes and as we continue to hurt each other and fail in our responsibilities. Strengthen us. Help us to not abandon the vision even though we don't execute it, don't execute it so well. Thank you for the mercy that's supplied in the gospel covers our failures, and covers our sins so that we might keep moving forward, knowing the final destination such as it is. You've told us in Scripture where we're headed. You've told us, promised us, guaranteed us that we will be conformed to the image of your Son. We will be like Him as men, and we will be like Him as women. And so we pray that you would help us to reflect that image faithfully in our lives to this day. Give us wisdom for how to navigate these kinds of issues that are hard to understand from your word in the context of our local church. Give us grace to have conversations, to understand where there might be misunderstanding, and help us to move toward each other and ultimately deeper in and closer to the truth. That's what we long for. We want to honor you in the way we live, and we do want to paint a picture of the wonder of the relationship between Jesus and the church in our marriages and in our relationships more broadly. So help us to live it out faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name.